Thanks very much, Harry. Please keep um, that passage open. You'll find that helpful as we go through it. Um, Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your words of life, and we recognize that we have nowhere else to go but you. And so, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you take these words of life and would you write them on our hearts and minds that we would live for you and trust you. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that makes you confident as a Christian? Is it possible to have kind of real, concrete, spiritual assurance throughout all the ups and downs of life? Or is assurance just a bit of a pipe dream? Sometimes in life we face the present and the future with sky-high confidence. Other times we don't feel assured about anything. And if our ordinary lives are like that, why should we expect our spiritual lives to be any different? It may be that you are a Christian person here today and, and a lack of assurance is your kind of regular experience of being a Christian. Maybe it's an ongoing struggle with a particular sin. Maybe it is the suffering that comes from following Jesus or just the suffering that we experience from living in a fallen world. Maybe it is just a daily battle to keep on believing. One day it feels like you're, you're standing on solid ground, but more often than not, it feels like your soul is sinking in spiritual quicksand. Whether we've been Christians a long time or a short time, or whether we're still even looking in from the outside, trying to figure out what it is we believe, the question of assurance is a vital one. What part do facts and feelings have in that equation? How does God help us to grow in assurance? How does the way we live in the present affect how assured we feel? Well, Romans 8 is here to help us with the important questions like these. It is as if we have been hiking up a mountain called Gospel Mountain for the last eight chapters. And as we've traveled upwards, we've stopped at several glorious viewpoints along the way. We've toughed it out through some precipitous downhill sections. We've had to cross some difficult valleys and gullies. But now at last, uh, we've reached the top, one of the most glorious mountain peaks in the whole of the Bible. And as we stand there looking, there is one dominant image that defines the view, assurance. There are two glorious bookends at the beginning and the end of this chapter. We've read one of them, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or look down, verse uh, 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 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, no separation. That is the front and the back cover of this chapter. And everything in between is designed to increase our spiritual assurance. And so whether today is the first time we're standing on the top of Gospel Mountain or the thousandth time, it is worth just letting the view sink into our souls. And we're going to do that by looking at three sections, each of which describes what it means to be a real Christian believer. First of all, Freed from condemnation by the Son. Verses 1 to 3, freed from condemnation by the Son. Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever we read uh, the letters in the New Testament and we see that word therefore, it's always worth asking, what is the therefore, therefore? How does what the author say here wrap up and bring the threads together of what he's been saying? And in this case, the logic takes us back, first of all, to the difficult terrain we crossed last week at the end of chapter 7. I wonder if you remember that we saw our desperate need for grace. And we saw chapter 7, verse 25, that God has given us that grace. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has rescued us through Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation. But the logical connection here also goes a bit further back, back to chapter 5, to the last time when Paul used that word, condemnation. Chapter 5, verse 18. Adam's, um, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Paul is also taking us back to that chapter. And he wants us to remember, well, Adam, he was the first sinner, wasn't he? But we all follow in his steps. All of us are natural-born rebels against the king. And Adam's spiritual image is imprinted upon our hearts. By nature, we are worthy of judgment. We stand condemned. That is Adam. But Christ came and Christ lived the perfect life. And his supremely righteous act of dying for us in our place opened up the the way to the opposite of condemnation, to justification, to restoration into right relationship with God. And that is the wonderfully certain gospel hope Paul wants us to see as he builds the foundations for spiritual assurance. So let's continue in chapter 8, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So even though we deserve condemnation, a Christian believer can be absolutely sure that they will never ever be condemned because God has condemned sin already. He has already pronounced sentence upon it. He cannot and he will not do it again for those who are in Christ. Well, to dig into that a bit more, we just want to follow the logic through these really important sentences that Paul works through to get to this life-changing conclusion. And it's important as we do that to notice that he uses the word law slightly differently in verse 2 and verse 3. So in verse 2, he uses it to describe two opposite powers or principles that are at work in the world. You see verse uh, 2. The law of the Spirit who gives life, so God the Holy Spirit, and the law of sin and death, in other words, human sin. Those two powers, the Spirit and sin, always achieve the same results. Whenever they do anything, the Spirit gives spiritual life, sin produces death. But then in verse 3, Paul switches back to his default use of the word law, And he describes the the Old Testament law of Moses. And he wants us to know that that law, which is God's law, it's good. It is utterly incapable of changing our human hearts. Because, verse 3, it is weakened 
by the flesh. The flesh, that is our natural anti-God-oriented self, which is rotten to the core. We can never achieve the perfect standards God demands. We couldn't, but God did. You see that verse 3? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, the son of God participated fully in our human nature. And so he alone could be our perfect substitute. He died on a cross for sin as a sin offering, but he had no sin of his own to pay for. It was for our sin and ours alone that he died. We were um, watching uh, this movie this week. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, the main character in this is called Molly. She sets up a number of high-stakes poker games in um, L.A. and in New York. And she ends up, for the rich and the famous, she ends up on trial for money laundering and running an illegal gambling business. It's a little bit hard to follow, but... She, in the end, she pleads guilty, okay? And she, she knows that she faces up to 10 years in prison. And then the twist comes as the judge hands down to her 200 hours of community service um, and a hefty fine. It's condemnation, but it's not the weight of condemnation that she was expecting. It is like that, but more so for the Christian. We are absolutely freed from condemnation by the Son. God does not put us on probation. God does not expect us to prove ourselves by being good enough from now on. God does not tell us that we need to pay some form of penance. We are all guilty of every single indictment against us. But every single one of the charges has been taken away. He does not even leave any points on our license. We get to walk out of the courtroom completely free. It is worth taking a moment to let that sink in. God will never uncover any missed evidence against us. He'll never go rooting through his files and think, ah, oh, they need to be punished for this. And I, I sort of missed that when Jesus died. We will never face a retrial. God will never change his mind. We are completely secure in Christ. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free. God the Holy Spirit takes the historical reality of Christ's death in our place on Good Friday and he applies it to our hearts and makes it a present reality today. In each and every Christian believer, without exception, as the old hymn goes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. If you are a Christian believer this morning, you can be absolutely spiritually confident. You are freed from condemnation by the Son. Your assurance begins in the past, but it doesn't remain in the past. It doesn't remain consigned to history. Assurance is available as a present reality today as well because as Christians live with the Spirit's help looking towards the future, second, empowered for life by the Spirit. Verses 4 to 13, empowered for life by the Spirit. Verse 4, let's read that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, 
who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Christ didn't simply die in our place to let us off the hook. He died so that we could live the life God originally intended us to live. Because a Christian is someone in whom the law of God, the perfect law of God, has been and is being fulfilled. It was fulfilled when Christ died in our place and lived that life of perfect obedience. It is being fulfilled as we live today, spiritually connected to Jesus. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It's a little like one of those children's spot-the-difference drawings. And the picture here is of two different people walking. And you look at the first picture, and you see that the direction of life is set by that anti-God satnav at at the heart of the unconverted human heart. We might look respectable on the outside, but on the inside we're turned in on ourselves. And so our natural destination is death, and our default relationship with God is one of war, not peace. What is more, Paul says in verse 8, because of sin, it is simply impossible for the person who doesn't believe in Jesus to please God at all. But that's the first picture. There is a glorious new picture, a different way of walking, a different way of living. Spot the difference, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... They do not belong to Christ. So Christians have moved from one kingdom into another. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are transferred out of the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit. And the Spirit even comes to live within us, and he brings Christ with him. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, which he is because the Spirit is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Um, I wonder if this pair on the screen might might help us at this point. Uh, From Biker Grove in the 1990s, forgive me if you're not English, but that I grew up watching that, to Britain's Got Talent, which you probably know, Saturday Night Takeaway, I'm a Celebrity. If you get either Ant or Deck, you always get the other. Now, I hope I can reverently say that in an in a, in a ever so vaguely similar way, Jesus and the, the Son and the Spirit are the inseparable divine double act. If you get one, you always get the other. They are different persons, but they are working together always in unison to bring the life-giving benefits of salvation into the lives of, our, of believers. And so every single Christian is empowered by the Spirit for life. Even though our bodies face physical death, which they do as a result of sin, the Spirit takes Jesus' righteous life and he applies it to us and he guarantees eternal life to us instead. Beginning the first time we trust Jesus, reaching all the way beyond the grave. Verse 10, sorry, verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. See, Jesus' body, it lay cold and lifeless and dead in Joseph's tomb. But on the third day, God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. And if that has happened, it is simply impossible that God will leave you and me in our graves. Because the same Spirit who invaded history on Easter Sunday invaded your life and my life the moment we put our trust in Jesus. He is living in us now. He will live with us forever. A friend of mine took me to that um, black sheep coffee place over the road this week. Now, I didn't particularly like the way you have to order coffee on a McDonald's-like screen, but, I, but it was certainly better than a vacant unit. I was quite fond of the old Costa there, but at least there was life in that place instead of just emptiness. That place is under new management. Every single Christian is under new management. We still live with the miserable reality of death. It hangs over our heads. And it might be that in our lives we feel that reality particularly. We're conscious of it through a sickness or through the sickness of a friend or a family member. Maybe a bereavement recently. Or it may be that death just feels further away. But either way, we know that it will knock on our door one day. None of us can escape death by our own efforts. But assurance is still available even in the face of death. Because God the Holy Spirit will make us alive forever one day. And in the meantime, he empowers us to live now, even though those lives now are marked by a strange kind of death. Let's carry on. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Uh, the 17th century Christian uh, leader and writer John Owen famously said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Like a cancer patient undergoes chemotherapy to kill their cancer, so a Christian must actively kill the spiritually deadly cancer of sin. If not, they must question whether they are really a Christian at all. Because the sign of past conversion in our lives is present convertedness. The way we live now must reflect that profound spiritual change that happened when we put our faith in Jesus. How do we do that? How do we put sin to death? It's not by letting go and letting God. It's not simply by our own efforts. We do take personal responsibility, but we do so with the Spirit's help. The way that our sanctification, which is a term which describes growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus, is an active partnership with God, the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, you put to death. And so when we look, at our, when we look for spiritual assurance in our lives, we don't just look back to what Christ did for us on the cross. We look at what is going on in our lives today as well. Are we living empowered by the Spirit 
for life? Are we participating in that painful process of spiritual chemotherapy? Are there areas of sin in our lives that have less of a hold on us now than they did in the past? Is there a desire in our hearts to turn away from sin and to one day be free from it completely? Do we live Do we act on those desires, even imperfectly, and even with tiny little baby steps, two steps forward, one step back? If so, we can be assured. The Spirit is in us, working in us, and so we will live, not just now, but for eternity. And not just as subjects of the king, and not just as prisoners freed from the sentence of a judge, but as children of the Father. This is the third reason why every single Christian can be spiritually confident. Third, adopted into the family of the Father. Verses 14 to 17, adopted into the family of the Father. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Once, do you remember, we were hostile to God, enemies. Now we are his children. Once we were slaves to sin, trapped forever under the dreadful certainty of condemnation. Now we are adopted sons and daughters. Once we were outside the family, now we are inside with all the legal rights and privileges and inheritance of a natural child, even including the right to call God Father. Verse 15, and by him we cry, Abba. That's the little Aramaic word for father. Abba, father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Of course, we are free to address God in all sorts of different terms. Many different, all sorts of different terms given to us in the Bible. But the most precious and personal name we can ever use to address God is the one Jesus himself used, our Father in heaven. And we avail ourselves of that extraordinary opportunity every single time we pray. Of course, we all bring baggage to that word. It may be from our own experience of the good, the bad, or the ugly fathers we had. Or it may be from our own stuttering attempts to be fathers ourselves. Or the desire that we might have to be a father one day. We all have an idea of what a good father ought to be like. And the Spirit makes us aware deep on the inside that God has become our perfect father. The source of all trust and security we need. And he even gives us the same legal rights as his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That mention of suffering is a bit of a trailer for the second half of the chapter. But leaving it aside for now, we can still see the extraordinarily tight connection between us and and Jesus. We are God the Father's legal heirs. Everything that belongs to Jesus, so everything that belongs to God belongs to Christ, and everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you and me, even including the future certain hope of glorious eternal life. 
It's vital as Christians that we know certain things to be true. If we want to be assured, we need to know stuff. But Christian assurance will always be half-baked if it's only ever knowledge in our heads. We need to feel stuff as well. We need to feel things that are true. And the second half of the chapter explores those feelings further. But at this point, I think it is worth just noticing that the part that prayer should have in helping us to feel that things are true. You see, Paul says the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. He enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. Then surely, if that is the case, we should dwell upon that fact when we pray. We couldn't even begin to pray if that truth wasn't true. How about we begin our prayers, like Jesus taught us to pray, by addressing God as Father? And maybe just kind of riffing on that, meditating upon that a bit. Father, thank you so much that as I begin to pray to you today, you, almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, are my Father in heaven. You're not just almighty God. You're not just my Lord and King. You're my Father. You've adopted me into your family, and I'm not alone. I've got spiritual brothers and sisters in my church, in my country, across the world, and Jesus is my brother. And in those times when it's hard to pray or we don't know what to pray about, or those times when we come with a long list of prayer requests, we can still allow that truth, that the ultimate source of all trust and security in the universe is our Father. We can allow that truth to shape the way we pray. And if we've stopped praying for one reason or another, surely this is a reason in itself to start praying again, adopted into the family of the Father. Prayer is simply talking to your dad in heaven. What a most wonderful privilege we have. So whatever is happening um, in our lives today, we need to see and to savor the, the view at the top of Gospel Mountain. Every single, every person in the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the life of every Christian. God is committed to us 110%. Following Jesus isn't a golden ticket to a life free from anxiety and doubt. It doesn't inoculate us from the ongoing battle with sin or the painful trials of suffering, and there's more to hear about that next week. But nonetheless, spiritual assurance isn't just possible it is available. We look back to what Jesus did for us on the cross, freed from condemnation by the Son. We live day by day with the Spirit's help, putting sins to death, looking forward to the resurrection, empowered for life by the Spirit. And we rest each day in the arms of our loving Heavenly Father, adopted into the family of the Father. What more assurance do we need for our weary souls than that would you bow your heads and pray with me our heavenly father we thank you that you are our father in heaven that we are adopted into your family Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are intimately involved in our lives today, empowering us to live the lives that we were designed to live and guaranteeing our resurrection from the dead. 
God the Son, Jesus Christ, we praise you that you died for us in our place, that there is now no condemnation and we are freed from that. So please, Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you assure us in our hearts today as we follow Jesus.